I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have a great story about the Battle of Trafalgar, but first, some quick housekeeping. A shout-out to our newest patrons, Ian, Jack, and Jeremiah. Thank you guys for your contributions. You just bought books on Pearl Harbor for the December episode, so thank you very much for that. If you out there are listening and want to become a patron and help drive my wife insane with the amount of books we have, go to patreon.com and search Cauldron. There's some really cool rewards on there. Um, With the different levels of patronage, you can get different rewards, and soon we're going to have some different uh, pieces of apparel, hats, shirts, things like that. So definitely check that out at patreon.com. To see some cool images and get some little history factoids every day, go to Instagram and Facebook. Again, just search Cauldron and hit follow. Finally, uh, also check out the website. It's cauldronpodcast.com where I upload all of the various blogs and audio and all that stuff, plus some images and maps. And then also on the website, you can check out the different sources we have. Just go to the library, uh, and I list everything that I've used for each episode. So if any of these books sound good to you, check it out there. Don't forget, on iTunes, rate and review. Please, please, please rate and review. The more we get, the higher up we go, the more people hear it, the more time I can devote to this show. And finally, the sources that we used for this week. I used uh, War in the Age of Sail, 1650 to 1850 by Andrew Lambert, which was really great. It had some uh, wonderful maps in there. And I also, again, I used uh, Paul K. Davis's Hundred Decisive Battles. Uh, I sound like a broken record here. I know that. But seriously, get this book. It's great, digestible history. I think you can get it on Amazon for like five bucks. It's definitely worth it. Uh, I used a couple of other books, but you'll have to go to the website to check that out. And again, that's cauldronpodcast.com. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get stuck in. was eerily muffled. It was as if the small room below decks was in another time, in another place, somehow removed from but right next to the momentous action happening right outside. The room was candle-lit, and adding to the strangeness of the moment, the movement of the ship cast ghostly shadows which danced around the walls almost as if they were beckoning the small pale figure to follow them into beyond. The figure was narrow in lithe, with the frame of a dancer or an artist. 
His skin had gone an ashen chalk as his time ticked away. Though unimpressive physically, at 47, Horatio Lord Nelson had fought with such primal ferocity and cut out such a name for himself that the seasoned veterans of war who stood by and watched him die wept openly as if they were watching the last moments of Achilles himself. As this lion in an Englishman's body slowly rasped and gasped his final breaths, he whispered, quote, Thank God I've done my duty, end quote dying at the moment of his greatest victory. Sacrifice, duty, courage, Nelson possessed all of these, and more, and his shockingly successful career has gone unmatched through the ages. He became England's greatest warrior, the embodiment of the Royal Navy, and a controversial but wonderfully interesting hero that thwarted Napoleon at the height of his powers. Napoleon's last best chance to break the old enemy slipped through his hands just off the coast of southern Spain. In a massive naval battle that raged for hours and saw horrible carnage. It was at Trafalgar that Nelson sealed his fate, met his death, and ensured the Grand Army of Napoleon would not be knocking down the gates of Buckingham Palace anytime soon. Something happens in Europe, and every hundred years or so it sprouts some particularly ambitious little dink that usually puts the whole continent through some pretty heavy stuff before he gets taken out by a coalition of fairly uneasy allies. Napoleon Bonaparte was just such a dink, albeit a little bit more resilient and difficult to take out than others. During the chaos of the French Revolution, Napoleon, a Corsican, found himself in charge of an artillery battery outside of the t city of Toulon. And in one of those beautiful coincidences of history, young Nelson was actually stationed on a ship blockading Toulon at the same time. After Napoleon's success in Toulon, Napoleon rode the revolution rapidly, becoming a general and winning victory after victory in the field in Italy. Then it was off to the Levant, and as the saying goes, winds beget winds. So Napoleon kept climbing the ladder until he found himself first consul of France and finally made himself emperor. Almost all the other major European powers at some point had been defeated by Napoleon, and his hope was to eventually have complete control of the continent itself. In 1802, France and England signed the Peace of Amiens, which everyone on both sides knew was not worth the paper it had been written on. Used more as a timeout for both sides to regroup and catch their breath, the peace was ended in 1803, which means that from 1793 to 1814, England and France were in a state of constant war, but for that one single year. Napoleon had a firm grasp on the land side of things, but was unable to get any traction at sea, which also meant France's trade and commerce was in a potentially dangerous position. Napoleon wanted to rebuild his fleet, get Italy, Holland, and Belgium under control, and then secure his trade situation. In 1803, the treaty came to an end when Britain refused to leave Malta and declared war gobbling up as much French shipping as they could in the process. 
an infuriated Napoleon had to deal with the pesky problem of Great Britain, and he had to do it quickly as the British were planning on, and very capable of, financing the armies of Napoleon's continental enemies. The solution was simple, or so it seemed. Build a fleet of troop carriers, pack 100,000 men on them, and sail for Dover to disembark the Grand Army on enemy territory. Napoleon figured the crossing would take about four days, and the conquest of Britain would be fairly quick. Invasion, he thought, would solve the problem, but between his Grand Army and England stood the Hearts of Oak, England's best defense, the Royal Navy. been slowly growing over the last 200 years into what would become the world's most powerful force. Trial and error and some hard-learned lessons taught by the Spanish, Dutch, and most recently the French navies helped to forge a force that demanded perfection from its admirals and captains and complete obedience from its sailors. Naval warfare in the late stages of the Age of Sail had become something of a massive ballet on water, as the beautiful, cumbersome ships would maneuver at a glacial pace to get into a formation known as the Line of Battle. Then the two opposing sides would try to pull alongside each other and then unload broadsides at one another, aiming to destroy, or better yet, to capture their selected target. As ships had gotten larger and larger, so had the corresponding broadsides that they fired. With some first-rates, or ships of the highest quality, and this is where the term first-rate actually comes from, having three, or in some cases even four, gun decks. Each gun deck was bris bristling with cannon, and then there were carronades and small anti-boarding deck guns up on the top deck. All these guns together fired a broadside, basically a massive wall of metal hurled at the enemy, the sheer weight of which could make an enemy ship floating splinters in seconds. Beyond just the weight of a broadside, there was the addition of various types of shot designed to serve specific purposes. There was chain or bar shot, which was essentially just two big metal balls with a, a, uh, a rod or a chain in between the two of them. And these would be shot at uh, the rigging or sails, whirling through the air, trying to take out anything that would help maneuver the ship. And then you had canister shot, which was made up of a metal cylinder filled with musket balls. And this is perfect for anti-personnel tasks like clearing enemy boarding parties or enemy gun decks. And then there was grape shot, a mixture of canister and solid shot. These would be medium-sized cannonballs that would kind of fire off like a large shotgun. And finally, you had your mainstay, the solid shot which would have been the standard round fired. And of course, it's in the name. A solid shot would have just been a big metal ball, 
And, and this thing would have uh, weighed anywhere from 32 to 60 plus pounds, fired with the intent of obliterating anything in front of it, be it man, mast, or hull. Now, this is an interesting thought to keep in mind that at the Battle of Waterloo, on the, 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 the heaviest field artillery was throwing 12 pound balls. And that should give you a real sense of the size and power of a, of a ship's broadside. Now, to say that the two men destined to face off on the coast of southern Spain were opposites of each other is a complete understatement. Pierre-Charles Jean-Baptiste Silvestre de Villeneuve was born in 1763 and declared for the Revolutionary Convention early in his career, allowing for pretty steady advancement. A somewhat uneventful career did, however, see him fall under scrutiny at the Battle of the Nile when he failed to support the French ships that were under attack by Lord Nelson. But his escape with uh, a semi-intact fleet and the fact that every facet of the French Navy failed at the Nile shielded him from loss of position. In 1804, seemingly for no great reason, Napoleon promoted Villeneuve to vice-admiral and commander of the all-important Toulon fleet. A man painfully aware of his shortcomings and mediocrity, I have to step in here and mention that I actually do feel bad for Villeneuve. He, he was not a brilliant admiral by any stretch, but he really never claimed to be that. In fact, uh, he was just as bemused by his appointment as anyone else. From what I've read, it seems like he was terrified of having such an important command. Having been at the Nile, Villeneuve would have seen firsthand the brilliance of the man he was to fight opposite, and he knew full well he had no shot. Because, on the other side, he was facing Horatio Nelson, who was born in 1758 and was the son of a reverend with 12 siblings, which I think probably had something to do early on honing his need to stand out. The nephew of a captain, Nelson went to sea early in life, first sailing as an ordinary seaman. He had a lifelong ability to charm people and, and create a, a sense of love for himself uh, amongst other people. And he also, oddly enough, had a lifelong susceptibility to seasickness, something that he was very aware of and seemed to be uh, fairly shy about uh, for, for most of his life. In 1779, he was made captain at the young age of 20 and spent the following decade in the West Indies earning his stripes. In 1793, he was made captain of the 64-gun Agamemnon and then was promoted to the 74-gun HMS captain with orders to roam the Mediterranean, hitting French commercial and naval shipping. Now, Nelson, a man of action and energy, was about taking the fight to the enemy and leading from the front, and both of these would cause him serious bodily harm. In 1797, he lost his right arm in action off Tenerife, but it's here that his ability to throw out an action movie line that would make Arnold blush first surfaced. When his men tried to help 
uh, the grievously injured Nelson, he shouted, quote, Leave me alone. I've got my legs left and one arm, end quote. Years later, he would lose sight out of one of his eyes. At the Battle of Copenhagen, his commanding officer ordered him to fall back. His ships were getting hammered by artillery from the coastal fortress. But Nelson, using his dull eye as a prop, placed his spyglass to the eye, claiming he could not see the orders being signaled. To the men on his deck, he said, quote, You know, I have only one eye. I have a right to be blind sometimes, end quote and then proceeded to continue the attack under heavy enemy fire. Now, first becoming a sensation with the British public in 1797, by defying orders and boarding two enemy ships at the Battle of St. Vincent, Nelson won a huge victory at the Battle of the Nile, and another at that previously mentioned battle in Copenhagen, defeating the Danish navy at anchor, thereby depriving Napoleon of his naval forces at every turn. In the summer of 1805, the struggle between Nelson and Napoleon would come to a head for better or worse on the orders of Napoleon himself. Napoleon ordered his Admiral Villeneuve to break out of the blockade in Toulon, head for the French West Indies in the Caribbean, and collect as many ships as he could while harassing the hell out of the British colonies there. Then, when the British were forced to respond, the French fleet was to fly back to France and go to each major French port, picking off the smaller English blockading forces, swelling their own numbers with the newly freed French ships. From Boulogne to Rochefort and beyond, the French would lift the blockade and amass a huge fleet that would be able to, if not outright, beat the Channel Fleet, then to at least hold them off while the invasion went ahead. Once he had 100,000 men on English territory, Napoleon was certain the war would be over. Napoleon's plan mirrored how he fought on land. Spread your enemy out, and then quickly concentrate overwhelming force on the enemy's weak point. He failed to realize that in naval warfare, the fog of war was even murkier than on land, and that among his enemies was a man that was to the waves what he, Napoleon, was on land. Horatio Nelson, the greatest admiral of his day, maybe ever, initially got it wrong. When he heard the French fleet at Toulon under Villeneuve had broken free, his first assumption was that Napoleon was heading to Egypt again to threaten British trade routes and the crown jewel of India. His famous lack of frigates, which were small, fast warships perfect for information gathering and recon, meant he was essentially blind, and by the time he got to Egypt, Nelson realized the gravity of his mistake. Deducing that the only other British soft target was in the Caribbean, Nelson changed course and sailed his fleet halfway around the globe trying to catch Villanueva and the French fleet. The rest of the summer was spent in a slow dance with the French skipping out just a couple of steps ahead of the pursuing British, neither able to really figure out the other's plan. Finally, the French fleet picked up some Spanish support and was able to make its way to the friendly port of Cadiz. Nelson, 
followed them there and sat outside the harbor with his smaller fleet, waiting, watching, and willing the enemy to come out and fight. Realizing his plan to land an army in England was not going to move forward anytime soon because of the, the failure and timidity of his top admiral, Napoleon decided to take his army east and deal with the Austrians and Russians that had begun to get a little restless. On his way, he dismissively ordered Villeneuve to land troops in Sicily, a rebuke that would essentially turn the French admiral into a ferryman. While refitting and supplying in Cadiz, Villeneuve teamed his fleet up with the Spanish Admiral Gravina and combined their fleets. Now they would number some 33 ships of the line. On October 20th, Villeneuve put to sea, hoping to sneak off while the British fleet was temporarily outnumbered. Late in the day, the two sides came into visual contact, but with little wind and thickening waters, no real fighting would take place on the 20th. The turning weather made organizing his line even more difficult than it normally would, as his moderately experienced men and ships were shoved and ponderously sailed into a choppy, uneven, overlapping French and Spanish line. Villeneuve knew that his only hope was in a strong, cohesive line and that Nelson would do everything in his power to break it. On his ship, the HMS Victory, Nelson had been plotting and planning for weeks with his captains and spent the night of the 20th into the 21st giving his final orders. Over dinner, he explained to his men that the British fleet would form two columns, the first one, led by Nelson in the victory, would slam into the combined French fleet around midway up its line. The second would slam into the now cut-off enemy rear, working its way ship by ship. All the while, the first column would act as a wall, keeping the French vanguard from supporting the overrun rear. Nelson didn't want to just win. He wanted to annihilate the French and Spanish fleet. The victory and Nelson would be in some hot fighting in the center, so Nelson planned on having the fighting Temerary and the Neptune, both three-deckers, join him in the first column. The solid, if unimaginative, Admiral Collingwood would command and lead the second column in his hundred-gun Royal Sovereign. Understanding the fact that plans tend to fall apart when the fighting begins, Nelson made a point to stress going at the enemy, going so far as to say, quote, no captain can do very wrong if he places his ship alongside that of the enemy, end quote. Nelson knew his ships were better, his guns were faster, his men more ready, and if the British could just get their hands on the enemy, he believed the French numbers wouldn't matter. October 21st, 1805 brought little wind, and that meant that there was one of those weirdly specific-to-warfare moments of heightened reality. The two fleets were closing on each other, but with miles of water to cover and a top speed of around two miles an hour, it would be midday at the earliest before the fighting would start. So, 
there was breakfast to eat, and then the daily chores of life on a sailing ship to go about. And then, of course, there was lunch to be served, eaten, and cleaned. All the while, the men aboard could see the enemy ships coming closer and closer and closer, getting bigger and bigger and bigger along the horizon, knowing that once they got to a certain size, all hell would break loose. By late morning, Nelson's columns were on track towards the enemy line. Nelson, working to conceal his true intent and choosing to hit the enemy in column, knew he was sacrificing safety and firepower momentarily for speed and a concentration of force. By late morning, Collingwood ordered his ships to pick out the point they planned on slamming into in the enemy line, and while Nelson kept his ships in a tight line headed straight for the center. Sending up his famous signal, quote, England expects that every man will do his duty. Nelson showed his deep love and understanding for his men and the moment, while also giving history a hell of a great line, which would eventually be shortened to simply England expects. Funny enough, at the time, Collingwood and some of the other captains didn't understand why Nelson had wasted time to order something they knew inherently to be what was their duty. But Nelson had a deeper understanding of how it would play with the men and also with the press back home. That is the signal that is remembered, but the two that he sent following prepare to anchor off after the close of day and engage the enemy more closely proved to be a bit of unsubtle foreshadowing. Midday saw Collingwood's massive HMS Royal Sovereign come into range of the even larger 112-gun Santa Ana. The Sovereign passed by the stern or rear of the ship and unloaded a broadside that ripped through the whole length of the Santa Ana. Then the Sovereign pulled up right alongside and just started unloading into her. Several enemy ships swarmed on, and, swarmed on and surrounded the Sovereign, which was almost totally dismasted by the time that British ships had showed up in support. Meanwhile, Nelson and the Victory had been aiming for Villeneuve's flagship, the 84-gun Bocentaur, the whole time. And like the Sovereign's ship and tactics, Nelson also came up to the weak enemy stern and unloaded a broadside. The Victory's initial broadside, though, was made even more especially deadly by having its guns double-loaded. Even having a 68-pounder carronade loaded with shot and a barrel of musket balls, all of this lead made for a withering broadside that basically cleared the Bosentar's deck. Momentum then brought the HMS Victory into combat with the 74-gun French ship Redoubtable. And the Redoubtable's crew had been trained very well to use musketry to clear enemy ships from uh, on the top deck to clear them of boarding parties. And then to 
once they were cleared, the Redoubtable's crew would eventually board themselves. At 1.30 that afternoon, a sharp-eyed crewman of the Redoubtable in the rigging took aim at a small officer on the Victory's deck and fired, hitting him in the chest and dropping him on the spot. The captain of the Redoubtable had his boarding party ready to go and were about to launch themselves onto the English flagship when the fighting temerary pulled up alongside and obliterated his boarding crew with one giant engulfing broadside. By the end of the day, the shattered Redoubtable would surrender. As Collingwood and the second column followed the plan and battered the enemy fleet that was at the rear, the main action of the day continued to center around the flagships as Victory and Bocentar were joined by the Spanish four-decker Santisma Trinidad. Trading broadsides like heavyweight boxers, all the ships involved were taking violent beatings, but the French had what should have been an advantage. The vanguard of the line of French ships was basically unbloodied, and Villeneuve signaled his admiral there, Dumanoir, to return to the fight with his four remaining ships. But poor winds and cowardice made Dumanoir slow to react, and by the time he did, the situation was irretrievable. Dumanoir, Villeneuve's last hope, was driven off by chasing British ships. Watching his only chance disappear over the horizon at 4.30, Villanueva surrendered his flagship, the Bocentar, which was then followed by the Santisma Trinidad. At that moment, the little officer that had been shot through by a redoubtable crewman was in the cockpit of the victory, uttering his last words. He had been covered with a sheet and brought below decks so that the men on the gun deck wouldn't see him and lose heart during the battle. It was none other than Lord Horatio Nelson. The musket ball had cut Nelson's spine and then traveled into his lung, puncturing it. He was in incredible pain as he slowly drowned in his own blood, but he was conscious throughout, and once he learned of his victory and was told that Britain was safe from invasion, he uttered, quote, Thank God I've done my duty, end quote, and died. Slowly, the fighting petered out, and at 5.30, the French Achel blew up in a shattering, ear-splitting fireball. A couple Allied ships were able to slip the screen and sneak away, but the battle was over, and a more lopsided victory is hard to find. Seventeen enemy ships surrendered at Trafalgar, a huge number that represented a vast amount of Napoleon's resources and future hopes. Unfortunately, Nelson's signal to weigh anchor at the end of day was not followed, and so many of the prizes that were captured were lost, but they no longer were threats to British interests. The British losses were some, somewhere between 250 to 449 killed, and some were over 1,200 wounded, which compared to French and Spanish losses 
was nothing. Between the fighting and the ensuing storm, the Allied losses came to between 5,000 and 7,000 sailors. The Redoubtable itself lost 578 men killed of a crew of 672. The Bocentaur and Santisma Trinidad suffered similarly. The British were able to commit such a slaughter because their guns fired at times twice as fast as the enemy and because of the brilliance of Nelson's plan. By crossing the enemy line, or his T, his whole plan had worked completely. Separating the enemy into chunks, he was able to devour the large force bit by bit. So strongly did his subordinate officers feel about Nelson after the battle that it became popular to paint their ships in the Nelson fashion, with a black band on each gun deck that the HMS Victory still has to this day. The storm that followed deprived the Royal Navy of its prizes, but in the ensuing engagements, more damage was done, so that all told, the combined Franco-Spanish fleet of 33 was culled down by 23 ships, leaving only 10 ships of the line intact in that area. As complete and great a victory as Trafalgar was, the loss of Nelson loomed large. His body was transferred back home in a cask of grog, bestowing on the Navy's rum ration forever the title of Nelson's Blood. Upon arrival, Nelson was given a massive state funeral befitting his status, and the six admirals and captains that carried his casket famously wept at the loss of their leader. As the most famous and beloved Briton in his time, Nelson received a column in what is now Trafalgar Square, adorned with metal friezes cast from the cannon of captured French ships. As honored and revered as Nelson was, Villeneuve was not. Once he was released from Britain, he returned to France a broken and beaten man. Many believed that the poor man was to be the final casualty of the Battle of Trafalgar, later in life committing suicide alone, penniless, and unmourned. A great victory Trafalgar was, but war-changing in the immediate, it was not. Infuriated by his loss, Napoleon began replenishing his navy soon after the battle. In fact, on the continent, little changed, as Napoleon would win his finest battle that same year at Austerlitz. That being said, Napoleon's ability to challenge the British blockade or disrupt British trade was completely wrecked by Trafalgar. For the rest of his reign, he would constantly find himself outfoxed by the Royal Navy and unable to stop British goods and money from finding their way into his enemy's hands. His grand continental system was an attempt at going around that, and it forbade British trade on the continent, but without a navy to enforce it, ultimately the continental system proved completely ineffectual. The other effect of Trafalgar was Britain's ability to start transporting troops onto the continent. The Spanish ulcer, Napoleon's eventual doom, really began in force once the seas were clear for Wellington and his redcoats to land in Portugal and Spain. The constant fighting on the peninsula 
gave the British valuable experience while depriving the French of men, material, and treasure. Almost a decade after Trafalgar, the true value of Nelson's victory would be realized on the field at Waterloo. Another effect of the massive naval blockade of the entirety of Europe echoed in North America. As the Royal Navy grew ever larger, there was desperate need for sailors, and one of the most effective ways of getting them was through impressment. Sanctioned piracy and kidnapping, impressment became a hot-button topic in the new United States, and essentially consisted of any ship that the Royal Navy stopped, they could take the sailors off. Uh, not all of them, they had to leave enough for the ship to be functioning, but they could remove as many of the men as they, they could within those guidelines. And it essentially meant that you had American citizens being taken off of these ships and impressed into the Royal Navy and ended up serving on ships blockading Europe. Fearing that this violated their sovereignty and international law, the young United States fought back. The War of 1812 would follow, and for Britain, a mere side story. But for the United States, the War of 1812 was a formative moment in the nation's youth. The final achievement of Trafalgar was the crowning of Britain as the world's sole naval superpower. Over the next 100 years, the British Empire enjoyed unparalleled access to the world's markets and territory, building an empire that was fabulously wealthy and, some would say, the sun never set on. This was all built through the use of the Royal Navy and its large maritime force. Britain's power and safety at sea would go unchallenged until World War I and even up to and during the Second World War. All right. Thanks for joining us. I hope you liked our story about Trafalgar. Next up is our coverage of the Battle of Britain. If you go to Patreon and subscribe, you can check out our interview on the Battle of Arsouf and a brief overview of the Crusades with Angelo, a guy who's kind of a specialist in arms and armor. And after this, we're going to cover some non-British stuff, I promise. I'm looking back on the website right now, and I'm looking at all the blogs, and I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> Everything we've covered has had some, uh, most of the battles we've covered have had some British angle to them. So I'm going to find us some non-British stuff. Again, thanks for listening. Please rate and review us on iTunes. I know it's a pain in the neck, but it really would help the show. And don't forget... Go to uh, Instagram and Facebook, follow, like, uh, and keep your eyes peeled. We're going to have a couple of different uh, prizes and raffles going out where I'm going to start sending out some of the books that I have. Uh, I have too many, and I don't need 15 books about the Battle of Agincourt. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Thank you again for listening. We will catch you next time on Cauldron. Have a good night.